Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Today, we're joined by Virginie O'Shea, founder and CEO of Firebrand Research, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Theo. Nice to be here. Yay. And before we start, I have to ask, um, and this is, this is our bad. I did not realize until recently, you had a MA in English literature at the University of Edinburgh. How did you end up in FinTech and doing what you do now? And we talk a lot about, um, you know, what you do in the, what you did in college and in, in uni is not normally the same as what you end up doing in your career or different parts of your career, but English literature, I don't think I've ever met anyone in, in our, at least in our recent circle. So tell us more. <laughs> God, it seems so long ago, I've completely forgotten most of the things I learned at uni, but I must admit, um, I, I, I sort of started in the industry, um, I came into it as a journalist. So, um, and I noticed at the time there weren't any women in city journalism at the time. So uh, I think I was one of, well, three, I think at the time, there was about three of us in London um, versus all the men on, on the FT publications at the time. It's, it's interesting. Um, and that's where I started my focus on. And I, and I sort of super specialized over the years um, in particular areas. And I ended up building out this network of, of lots of different people that I was talking to about all these different themes. Um, and I spent a lot of time talking to analysts. And um, I guess I ended up doing a lot of the same things that analysts were doing uh, and doing sort of consulting because I had such a good network of, of people I spoke to uh, that were telling me all these kinds of things that needed to be fixed in particular areas. Um, and I, I'm fascinated by the human angle of a lot of these problems. Um, so I spent a lot of time uh, with, with people trying to understand, you know, if a technology was being implemented, why wasn't it being used, <laughs> for example? Um, and, and sort of innovation programs, how did they fail and all of this kind of stuff. And it was fascinating to me. So um, particularly in the area I look at, it's very plumbing heavy. So I look at things like, you know, infra core infrastructure in, in financial institutions and the capital markets. So. Um, a lot of these things are, are relatively difficult to explain, <laughs> and I like I like to sort of uh, I, I like to put things in that are complex into a very uh, simple way of, of uh, you know meta using metaphors and things that I, I learned in English. I think has helped me to articulate some of the more complex areas that people just don't pay attention to. Let's let's talk about one of those subjects then. Uh, one of your favorite subjects, uh, financial regulation, FinReg. Mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing a lot of different regulatory approaches in Asia and Europe and the U.S. and other markets. Um, some regulators are taking a very proactive approach to encouraging fintech development, especially in Asia. Uh, the adoption, like the Monetary Authority in Singapore. Um, how well do we think that regulators are fostering or not fostering? Uh, innovation. Uh, should regulators be taking that role? What, what's your take on that? I mean, I think regulators need to understand the technology that financial institutions are using. Um, and that's certainly a great thing that these sandboxes bring to the regulators, right? That it brings them closer to, to implementations and, and understanding around uh, what exactly is important to the industry in terms of modernization. Um, and they get their hands around you know, the latest and greatest technologies and what kind of uh, areas they need to keep an eye on for risk. Uh, for example, um, you know, that's, that's a big important part of their job. In terms of fostering innovation, I think there's a lot of restrictions, particularly in the US, on US regulators in how much they can engage with the, the fintech community. 
uh, particularly, in, you know, they can't promote any specific technologies. Um, there's sort of conflicts of interest um, aspects there, likewise in Europe. Uh, but I've noticed in Asia that there's there's more, I guess, more leeway to get involved. And it's interesting to see the Monetary Authority of Singapore actually giving out sponsorships for fintechs, which I think is, is a real step forward for the industry in terms of, of you know, it, I don't know if that's, I don't think it's an endorsement as, as such, but it is it's sort of trying to encourage technology development, particularly around things like regtech, which are areas that uh, really need to improve over time. And that's where next-gen technology is perfectly applied, things like AI and pattern recognition and things like that. It's very important for, for regulators too. Yeah, I think with AI is really interesting too. We're just beginning to see um, regulators paying attention, but more on a broader scale, right? You know, what should we do? There, there are even questions that came up to say, should AI even be regulated? Um, and you see different approaches, you know, in, in like what Brad was saying, in, in, in different regions. I think it's going to be really, really exciting um, for the next few years. And hopefully it will evolve for good because mm -hmm. I, I am of a personal opinion that it freaks me out with something that is such a powerful technology and not just that it has so much implications around every aspect of our lives beyond banking mm -hmm. and it you know i i don't know if that is something that we can just let it grow and expand um without guardrails and certainly not just with the power residing amounts to few which is what mm -hmm. we're seeing right now yeah, so speaking of regulation, let's continue that thread. Um, I read a recent article around greenwashing mm -hmm. with funds changing their names to something green without actually changing the underlying assets of what they're investing. Now, you would notice if you actually read the long prospectus, and, but who does? So how can investors actually make sure they are putting money in the right places? And what about transparency, accountability? Is that something regulators should pay attention to well they certainly are uh, regardless of whether they should or not they are they are getting involved in in esg it's, it's an interesting uh, area because if you think about it e, the e and the s are quite contentious politically right <laughs> not everybody determines everything in the same way i mean if you look at you know certain types of energy should they be determined as, as green or clean um, that kind of varies from country to country as in, ter in terms of perceptions, right? And it's social norms. The S bit is particularly contentious as well, because let's face it, we're not all on the same, you know, page as each other um, culturally. So that's where I guess it's really tricky to implement something that's a global framework for global investors, because uh, let's face it, we all invest in global funds and things like that. It's not, we're not restricted to our own countries, right? If you look at the, the uh, obviously America has a big, um, uh, head start over a lot of, uh, you know, in the equities market. But I, I would say it's interesting to see um, how regulators are trying to navigate this. And it's become very political um, and it's become very tricky for them. But they have to do it because we need that global level of transparency. We need to have products that are like for like in, to a certain level. Uh, and that's why they've sort of developed things like the taxonomy as part of the the sustainability directive in, in Europe, for example, I think Europe was first out of the gate with their principles. And what's always, always the way with regulators is the one that comes to the table first tends to set the tone for the rest of them. 
Uh, and I think uh, given politically where you were a few years ago, well, I don't want to talk about it too much, but um, there was not much uh, chat in, in the US about uh, sustainability or climate change at that point <laughs> for obvious reasons. And now given we've got new administration, we've got new um, regulators in place as well uh, that reflect the priorities there. We're seeing a very different approach and we are seeing much more activity and discussion about this. Um, and I think we'll see different flavors per country, unfortunately, um, of, of global, um, you know, it won't be entirely global. It will be different flavors of, of taxonomies for, for each individual location. But hopefully there'll be some degree of common base there. Um, and I think it's important because, as you say, we want to protect investors. We don't want to see greenwashing happening. Um, and I, I think, you know, some some things are obviously greenwashing and some are very hard to call. So. We need to take out um, the easy things uh, and then try and focus on the, the sort of the nuanced ones per country. Let's talk about some of the harder things then. Uh, let's talk about, you know, regulating big tech. I mean, I, I, I think about the, the way that large technology platforms have sort of integrated into our lives. And it's almost like, how was life like before all of that? <laughs> And, and and the regulators are so far behind in terms of protecting you know everyday consumers and protecting you know just the way that data is handled across these systems. There's a lot of talk about the threat of big banks uh, being or big tech, sorry, taking over banking. Uh, we've seen where Google has sort of you know waffled in and waffled out with Plex and everything else, and we're, we're starting to to see a lot more sort of talk about increasing regulation on large tech platforms when it comes to banking data and the rest. Um, where do you think, you know, this is headed, you know, looking at Europe and looking at data privacy and looking at sort of the way that, especially in lending and other areas, uh, these large tech platforms are starting to come into our day-to-day -day even more. Um, what role do you think that this is going to play out in terms of financial services and regulators? Sure. I mean, in terms of, of big tech, I, we underestimate how much of an influence they have on the market already. I mean, if we think about it, tie it to the first question we were talking about cloud. Um, you know, and, well, I was talking about cloud earlier, I think it's, it's sort of a, um, an area that you, you, you sort of don't realize how much concentration risk there is, for example, in, on AWS or um, certain functions on Google, um, because a lot of the analytics tools we're building uh, in financial institutions are based on these tools. Um, and you're, you're locked into that relationship with that cloud provider. So it's very hard once you've built your next generation technology platform with a partner like that to move from one partner to another, because those, those tools are embedded in your organization. And the more that we put on top of them, the more embedded they become and the more influence that that big tech provider has on your organization as a whole. And, and, you know, you've got to look at the vendor partnerships as well. So not only are they partnering directly with the banks to develop technology, they're also partnering with other technology providers, core banking providers. All of these guys are now uh, dependent on cloud. So if you start peeling underneath all of this stuff, you realize it's not just the direct financial services relationships they may have with consumers or financial institutions. It's also the third, fourth, fifth party relationships. Uh, we're seeing that have a massive influence and big tech has really got its finger in a lot of pies. So that's something that I believe um, we've addressed in terms of data privacy in Europe. We've got GDPR. We've thought about, you know, where data resides and um, how to try and control that, put parameters around it. Is it effective? Mm, 
I'm not sure, but um, I would say that's the sort of direction of travel around data privacy and uh, per, per market. We're seeing, in, obviously, in, in the US, you've had the California um, regulator go the same direction. Um, and I think that's something that will continue. I think there's a lot of interest at the, the regulatory level about monitoring um, concentration risk in particular. Uh, and also, uh, I don't know how they address it, though, because there's only so many providers in that space, for example, in cloud. Um, and it's easy to directly regulate big techs, but when it comes to sort of those those less well seen or understood relationships, it's harder to regulate that. So I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg, frankly, at the moment. Well, it's interesting that you bring up, you know, California's privacy regulation, because I think it's a little bit of a mess. And, and we talk about, you know, the CCPA a lot on these type of conversations when we talk about regulation and data. Um, where, where do you really think, you know, that this is kind of going when it comes to really protecting consumers and, and their data and the rights for them to be able to sort of claw that back? Because when it was implemented um, and when I, I saw, you know, different elements of PSD2 and GDPR sort of rolling out across Europe and the UK, it seemed like, you know, in the beginning, there were a lot of sort of protections. There were a lot of sort of ways that people were, oh, yes, now I notice something's different. You know, I go to this website and I have to, you know, agree to these things or um, I'm, I'm looking at terms that are different than before. But when it comes down to it, yes, you could, you know, press a button and click and get your data, but it doesn't really seem like all that much has changed. So from your perspective, you know, in, in what's happening in the UK and in Europe, uh, have things really changed toward the bent of the consumer to protect them? To some extent, I mean, if I think about GDPR, it's much harder for um, non, what's it, non-domestic or non-regional regulators to get access to that data and interrogate it um, because you can put restrictions and parameters around it, right? So to some extent, uh, do they still try? Yes, of course they do, because there's extraterritoriality with every piece of regulation that we see out there. Um, do I think the end consumer um, really cares at this point about <laughs> where is data stored? I mean, I don't actually think we do notice these things. I think um, regulators are far more concerned with it than we are, to be perfectly honest, because they want to protect their own sovereign um, rights and their their you know their their connection to the market. They don't want to be sort of disintermediated by big tech that's all based in the US. <laughs> so let's be frank, it's all based in the US, aside from you know some in China, I guess. But um, it, it's it's kind of. Uh, I think it's a political play again <laughs> with many of these regulations rather than something that's specifically targeted at, at protecting consumers. Because if you think about it, we, we um, gamify a lot of aspects of our lives and we contribute all of our data as part of that. You know, all of this stuff about our, you know, insurance, uh, your insurance premiums can go down if you uh, share your health data and things like that. It's crazy. <laughs> I wouldn't have, I wouldn't do it, but I know a lot of my colleagues and friends uh, have done that. So it's certainly, uh, it's something about ownership of data and, and whether you feel like you need to, to claw it back or not. Yeah, that's the one worry I do have too, if you look at the different policies, right, that's being implemented or pursued by different countries. As you say, a lot of them are politically motivated, right? The, the, the request to keep certain data within your own physical borders can definitely 
I, I would think create challenges mm -hmm. for a lot of these solutions, you know, when, when you, when you're only allowed to do so much. And whereas if you think about technologies such as AI, it requires a vast amount of data. It requires a vast amount of diverse data from different populations set from different geographical location. I just feel like it's going to be a little bit of a mess um, going forward and not to, not to mention cost as well. So speaking of that, um, one of the things that we do talk about a lot, talking about cloud and cost and data and, and all those, it's around acceleration of digital transformation. That's what everyone's talking about. Oh yes, you know, it's speeding up, it's, you know, in your face, it's here. And along with that cloud, cloud adoption, what are some of the challenges um, that you see financial institutions face so far? Because it's easy to say, oh, we're going to go cloud, but it's much harder when it comes to execution and actually looking at what parts they can move and when and how. Mm -hmm. What what do you see from your perspective and what do you think the future would hold? I mean, in terms of cloud, I think certain firms, I, I, there's a spectrum, right? So capital markets firms, you've got everyone from firms like hedge funds that were born in the cloud. They don't necessarily, they've never had on-prem technology. They rely a lot on partners. They don't want to be a tech firm. So they just rely on vendors, vendor solutions that are SaaS based, for example, right? Um, and you've got everyone from them to the large financial institutions, the large banks generally that have everything on-prem. They've got data centers, they've sunk costs into you know, infrastructure. It's very hard for them to give that up and move <laughs> because they've spent so much money over the years on it. it. It takes a massive cultural shift to go from that to moving to something that's um, you know, hosted by someone else that's in the control of someone else. It's, a, it's, it's ceding control to some degree. And IT departments don't like that, right? We've got a lot of operational resilience chat going on. That also makes people, you know, wary of it because control, uh, they want to have the control in their own hands. Sometimes providers go down. We've had outages, um, you know, very high profile outages that have taken, um, you know, Gmail off offline, for example, uh, across, you know, various uh, regions. So when you see things like that, it makes people very nervous. So I think there's a lot, still a lot of concerns about cloud to some degree, right? With mission critical systems, you don't want something to go offline, right? Uh, it's and if you have BCP and you're reliant on your cloud provider to uh, to sort out BCP, you don't know that they they doing a good job. They may have you know failures there that you, you may not be inspecting them as often as you should if you're a smaller firm, for example, as well because you don't have the resources to do that. Um, so I think there's a lot of detractors and there's a lot of opinions about who's the right cloud provider, what kind of cloud provider should you have? Should it be run by a government organization versus run by a commercial entity because um, you know the, the government's going to be the most secure of course for example so i've had some interesting conversations with ctos on that point um i don't think the civil service does a good job you know the the, the government does a good job of running many things so <laughs> let alone themselves but you know i think maybe commercial entities are better at it uh, to some degree uh, you give and take there but and i would say in terms of the move we've got challenges because everybody at the moment is talking digital transformation so every bank asset manager, you know, wealth manager, under the sun, retail bank, investment bank, they're all trying to move to the cloud, right? And, and there's only a certain number of people out there that understand how to do that. You can't take something, lift it and shift it into the cloud and expect it to work. It, it doesn't work like that. So um, I think we, we initially, uh, when we came to this conversation, you know, 15 years ago, uh, in some instances, right, we've moved slowly, um, that everyone thought you could just pick it up and drop it into a cloud, it will work perfectly. No. Nah doesn't do that. So uh, I think that's that's kind of a, a learning curve we've had and people have made massive mistakes. 
um, over years and, and they've learned, but not necessarily always shared the mistakes that they've made. <laughs>and and it's not just cloud anymore you know that's the mm-hmm. thing it's it's where you're storing your data it's where your ai tools and applications are held you know mm-hmm. think about when aws goes down it's like when something you know that's open source or something that is sort of hosting everyone goes down there's a ripple effect across fintech and mm-hmm. starting to really impact banks as well and we we think about you know when um, there's something happening in the market, you know, there's all sorts of things that, you know, maybe we can't trade here or maybe can't can't trade there. Uh, but it's more important than that when you have the underlying tools and all the applications sort of wrapped up and sort of intermingled with all of the applications that we do today in terms of our banking and payments and everything else. Um, going into that a little bit, because you, you touched on gamification earlier and you wrote a piece about Cybos uh, and gamification and how it relates to fintech. And then we think about things in the past year, you know, like with Robin Hood and that tragic story. And then we think about how technology and the way that we display information has an impact on people. Mm-hmm. Um, why are regulators so concerned about gamification? Is it that they're, you know, some of these applications are trying to get us to do something we shouldn't be doing? Or is it simply that the power behind it might not necessarily always be accurate? What, what do you think about that? I think it's all of those things. I think it's, I mean, if we think about it, you want to protect the investor, the retail end investor that's engaging in the market, right? And the more that they're doing something because of, you know, an interesting looking app and the the interface and the the analytics behind it are sort of leading you down a path that may be not the best path for you in terms of of investment decision making. um, That's where they're concerned about it. They're concerned that people are doing things for the, you know, the sake of of, uh, filling a meter on on an app or something like that, right? It's as simple as that. Um, Regulators want to make sure that they are taking all of the risks into account before they make their investments. Um, and to be fair, <laughs> I think there was a lot of people bored at home trading. Uh, we had a massive uptick in retail trading uh, over the last day. Uh, it's continued into this year and it's global. So it's not just the US. I've noticed it across the globe that we've seen a massive uptick in, in uh, the number of uh, people that are engaging with retail brokers. So and downloading apps and all of these things. So. I think it's it, because it's grown and it, and it, even though people are returning to work or the office um, in, in some continents, it's still not slowed down that much. So and I think there's a lot of interest in it. Um, and I don't think gamification is always bad. I, I would say um, it, you want to engage the retail investor. You want them to be enjoying the experience and coming back and, and investing. Right. You want it's good for the good for the country. It's good for the stock markets. Right. So you do want to do encourage that. But there's a fine line there. Right. Between encouraging participation and making, you know, guiding someone down a path because you've got a lot of data about them that you're manipulating. So I think there's a lot of abuse that could happen behind the scenes uh, in terms of system design and, and um, pathways for, for various trading behaviors, but you've got to just keep, that's why the regulator has to keep a handle on it, right? Speaking of regulation, I think another area that we will probably see a little bit more activity is around payments, Mm -hmm. Um, the proliferation of different variations of buy now, pay later. This week, I've seen a lot of book now, pay later coming from travel sites. And, And it's, you know, playing into, 
okay, we've all been stuck inside our home for extended period of time. Now that we all got vaccines, people want to travel. Well, here it is, you know, a wonderful way to just book your expensive travel and pay in installments. Um, you know, I, I, there are certain providers that I, I like more, those that don't really exploit consumers with late fees and charges and all those. But there are certainly a lot of other players that are taking advantage of, of the situation. So I think that's going to be an interesting area to watch. Mm -hmm. So before we wrap, we want to ask you, Let's play crystal ball for a second. What are your top predictions for 2022? So looking into 20, oh goodness, I'm, I'm actually writing my post-trade trends for 2022 at the moment. So looking at what we've learned this year, um, I'd say a lot of the, the same things that we're seeing are going to be continuing on, right? There's going to be a lot more regulation to be dealing with um, because I've seen the list that the SEC is working on, for example, it's got over 90 items on it for next year alone. So um, <laughs> That tells you everything that we're going to be really busy in compliance, for example. Um, so, so there's certainly a lot of prioritization of certain aspects. Gamification is one. Resilience is another. Um, we also have a lot of work on digital transformation still to do. So I think we've only seen the tip of the iceberg in terms of technologies uh, and technology implementations and successes and failures and things. I think we spent a lot of time in Pilotville, as I call it, with a lot of technologies like AI. So we, we haven't really applied it to outside of sort of very niche areas. So um, I'd like to see it applied to more of the grunt work. Uh, to be fair, I think that's where we need to sort of focus our attention as an industry. And maybe on the gamification point, right, trying to make the UX um, for your internal bank um, teams better. Uh, I don't think we've spent enough time trying to make their lives better. I think we're spending so much time in these horrible technologies that are decades old, that don't work very well. Um, we need to think more about UX and, and we have a problem with everything's called the great resignation at the moment because people are leaving uh, the industry. We need to stop that out, outflow of people. So that will be a priority into 2022 as well. So that's sort of a, a, a quick <laughs> a quick overview of some of the trends I expect to see. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I hope that um, the, uh, the, the pandemic that many of us have been dealing with it will slow down so that we can actually meet more people in real life before we wrap again sorry um i need to know what side of the debate you stand in terms of cucumber gates we've <laughs> asked louise that we have asked lida we have um yeah <laughs> so i'm a specific preference I am pro cucumber, I must say. I will eat cucumber regularly uh, every week. I, 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 th I like pickles, all of them. Everything is good. Cucumber's always good. <laughs> Sorry, Lida. There With we the have battle. it. We battle <laughs> continues. <laughs> <laughs> and that continues. Let's look forward to another cucumber video from Lisa. Um, and with that, thank you so much for joining us today with One Vision, Regini, and for the rest of you, thanks for joining us on the show. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.